0: Super Awkward Funcast! You're listening to the Super Awkward Funcast! Yeah! Hello and welcome to this special Christmas episode of the annual Super Awkward Funcast Players Presents. A stage reading of blah 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 this year in honor of this hellscape that is 2020 i will be reading as well as i can <laughs> COVID 19 the great reset by world economic forum founder klaus schwab and Thierry mallory i don't know if i'm saying his name right and i don't give a shit who is also connected to the world economic forum by monthly barometer and he is known as Agenda Contributor on the website. If you don't recall, WEF, World Economic Forum, which hosts Davos every year, is the entity that put on the Event 201 event, event, at, uh, in New York on October 18, 2019. This is just a little background. Uh, along with the Johns Hopkins University Centers for Health Security and um, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. So they have no skin in this game at all. I am going to read, as well as I can, a 190-something page document that I found on the web for free. I'm not giving them any money to, to lecture to me and this is basically what the future entails in their mind like what they want our future to be like and, and it's also it was published in July 2020 just to capitalize on everything because a lot of these ideas were put forth way before this pandemic and they just needed a reason so basically that's the intro here's the intro in the book so we're gonna get right into it COVID-19 The Great Reset by Klaus Schwab ...whom I'm gonna try my best not to fuck up the accent too much... ...but I might have some flubs, I'm not gonna lie. Like, I have not really practiced his cadence very much... ...so it will not be accurate, but I'll do my best. I'll do my best. It's super awkward. Let's try it. Okay. Alright. About COVID-19, the Great Reset. Since it made its entry on the world stage... COVID-19 has dramatically torn up the existing script of how to govern countries, live with others, and take part in the global economy. Written by World Economic Forum founder Klaus Schwab and monthly barometer author Thierry Malerit, COVID-19, the Great Reset, considers its far-reaching and dramatic implications on tomorrow's world. The book's main objective is to help understand what's coming in a multitude of domains. Published in July 2020, in the midst of the crisis and when further waves of infection may still arise, it is a hybrid between a contemporary essay and an academic snapshot of a crucial moment in history it includes theory and practical examples but is chiefly explanatory containing many conjectures and ideas about what the post-pandemic world might and perhaps should look like Mm -hmm. the book has three main chapters offering a panoramic overview of the future landscape the first assesses what the impact of the pandemic will be on five key macro categories the economic societal geopolitical environmental and technological factors the second considers the effects in micro terms on specific industries and companies the third hypothesizes about the nature of the possible consequences at the individual level in early july 2020 we are at a crossroads the authors of covid19 the great reset argue one path will take us to a better world more inclusive more equitable And more respectful of mother nature the other will take us to a world that resembles the one we just left behind but worse and constantly dogged by nasty surprises we must therefore get it right the looming challenges could be more consequential than we have until now chosen to imagine but our capacity to reset could also be greater than we have previously dared to hope And this is where I get into the meat of the matter. And this is the first time I've read this, not this specific paragraph, but this is the first time I will have read this entire document. And I'm reading it with you babies, babies. (laughs) Introduction. The worldwide crisis triggered by the coronavirus pandemic has no parallel in modern history. We cannot be accused of hyperbole when we say it is plunging our world in its entirety and each of us individually into the most challenging times we faced in generations. It is our defining moment, we will be dealing with this fallout for years, and many things will change forever. It is bringing economic disruption of monumental proportions, creating a dangerous and volatile period on multiple fronts. Politically, socially, geopolitically, raising deep concerns about the environment and also extending the reach, pernicious or otherwise, of technology into our lives. No industry or business will be spared from the, from the impact of these changes. Millions of companies risk re- disappearing and many industries face an uncertain future. A few will thrive. On an individual basis, for many, life as they've always known it is unraveling at alarming speed. But deep existential crises also favor introspection and can harbor the potential for transformation. The fault lines of the world, most notably social divides, lack of fairness, absence of cooperation, Failure of global governance and leadership now lie exposed as never before, and people feel the time for merevention has come. A new world will emerge, the the contours of which are for us to both imagine and to draw. As the time of writing, June 2020, the pandemic continues to worsen globally. Many of us are pondering when things will return to normal. The short response is never. Nothing will ever return to the broken sense of normalcy that prevailed prior to the crisis because the coronavirus pandemic marks a fundamental inflection point in our global trajectory. Some analysts call it a major bifurcation. Others refer to a deep crisis of biblical proportions, but the essence remains the same. The world as we know it in the early months of 2020 is no more dissolved in the context of the pandemic. Radical changes of such consequence are coming that some pundits have referred to as before coronavirus and after coronavirus era. We will continue to be surprised by both the rapidity and unexpected nature of these changes. As they conflate with each other, they will provoke second, third, fourth and more order consequences, cascading effects and unforeseen outcomes. In so doing, they will shape a new normal, radically different from the one we will be progressively leaving behind. Many of our beliefs and assumptions about what the world could or should look like will be shattered in the process. However, broad and radical pronouncements like everything will change and an all or nothing black and white analysis should be deployed with great care. Of course, reality will be much more nuanced. By itself the pandemic may not completely transform the world but it is likely to accelerate many of the changes that were already taking place before it erupted which will in turn set in motion other changes the only certainty the, ch- the changes won't be linear and sh- sharp discontinuities will prevail covid 19 the gray reset is an attempt to identify and shed light on the changes ahead and to make a modest contribution in terms of delineating what the more desirable and sustainable form might resemble. Let's begin by putting things into perspective. Human beings have been around for about 200,000 years the oldest bacteria for billions of years and viruses for at least 300 million years. This means that most likely pandemics have always existed and been an integral part of human history since people started traveling around. Over the past 2000 years, they have been the rules, not the exception, because of the Inherently disrupted nature, epidemics throughout history have proven to be a force for lasting and often radical change, sparking riots, causing population crashes and military defeats, but also triggering innovations, withdrawing national boundaries and often paving the way for revolutions. Outbreaks forced empires to change course like the Byzantine Empire when struck by the plague of Justinian in 541-542 and some even to disappear altogether when Aztec and Inca emperors died with most of their subjects from European germs. Also, authoritative measures to attempt to contain them have always been part of the policy arsenal. Thus, there is nothing new about the confinement and lockdowns imposed upon much of the world to maintain COVID-19. They have been common practice for centuries. The earliest forms of confinement came with the quarantines instituted in an effort to contain the Black Death that between 1347 and 1351 killed about a third of all Europeans. Coming from the word "quaranta," which means 40 in Italian, The idea of confining people for 40 days originated without the authorities really understanding what they wanted to contain. But the measures were one of the first forms of institutionalized public health that helped legitimize the accretion of power by the modern state. The period of 40 days has no medical foundation. It was chosen for symbolic and religious reasons. Both the Old and New Testaments often refer to the number 40 in the context of purification, in particular the 40 days of Lent and the 40 days of Flood in Genesis. The spread of infectious diseases has a unique ability to fuel fear, anxiety and mass hysteria. In so doing, as we have seen, it also challenges our social cohesion and collective capacity to manage a crisis. Epidemics are by nature divisive and traumatizing. What we are fighting against is invisible. Our family, friends, and neighbors may all become sources of infection. Those everyday rituals that we cherish, like meeting a friend in a public place may become a vehicle for transmission and the authorities that try to keep us safe by enforcing confinement measures are often perceived as agents of oppression. Throughout history the important and recurring pattern has been to search for scapegoats and blame, place the blame firmly on the outsider. In medieval Europe, Jews were almost always among the victims of the most notorious programs Provoked by the plague. One tragic example inf- illustrates this point. In 1349, two years after the Black Death had started to rove across the continent, in Strasbourg on Valentine's Day, Jews who'd been accused of spreading the plague by polluting the wells of the city were asked to convert. After about 1,000 refused and were burnt alive. During that same year, Jewish Communities in other European cities were wiped out, forcing them to massively migrate to the, to the Eastern part of Europe, in Poland and Russia, permanently altering the dem- demography of the continent in the process. What is true for European anti-Semitism also applies to the rise of the Absolutist State, the gradual retreat of the Church, and many other historical events that can be attributed in no small measure to pandemics. The changes were so diverse and widespread that it led to the end of an age of submission, bringing feudalism and serfdom to an end and ushering in the era of enlightenment. Put simply, the Black Death may have been the unrecognized beginning of modern man, If such profound social, political, and economic changes could be provoked by the plague in the the medieval world, could the COVID-19 pandemic mark the onset of a similar turning point with long-lasting and dramatic consequences for our world today? Unlike certain past um, epidemics, COVID-19 doesn't pose a new existential threat. It will not result in unforeseen mass famines or major military defeats and regime changes. Whole populations will neither be exterminated nor displaced as a result of the pandemic. However, this does not equate to a reassuring analysis. In reality, The pandemic is dramatically exacerbating pre-existing dangers that we've failed to confront adequately for too long. It will also accelerate disturbing trends that have been building up over uh, prolonged periods of time. To begin elaborating a meaningful response, we need a conceptual framework, or a simple mental map to help us com- reflect on what's coming and to guide us in the making sense of it. Insights offered by history can be particularly helpful. This is why we so often search for a reassuring mental anchor that can serve as a benchmark when we are forced to ask ourselves tough questions about what will change and to what extent. In doing so, we look for precedence with questions such as is the pandemic like the Spanish flu of 1918, estimated to have killed more than 50 million people worldwide in three successive waves? Could it look like the Great Depression that started in 1929? Is there any resemblance with the psychological shock inflicted by 9-11? Are there similarities with what happened with SARS in 2003 and H1N1 in 2009, albeit on a different scale? Could it be z- like the z- great financial crisis of 2008 but much bigger? The z- correct, albeit unwelcome, an answer to all of these is no. None fits the reach and pattern of the human suffering and economic destruction caused by the current pandemic. The economic fallout in particular bears no resemblance to any crisis in modern history. As pointed out by many heads of state and government in the midst of the pandemic, we are at war, but with an enemy that is invisible, and of course metaphorically. If what we are going through can indeed be called a war, it is certainly not a typical one. After all, today's enemy is shared by all of how humankind. That said, World War II could even so be one of the most relevant mental anchors in the effort to assess what's coming next. World War II was the quintessential transformational war, triggering not only fundamental changes to the global order and the global economy, but also entailing radical shifts in social attitudes and beliefs that eventually paved the way for radically new policies and social contract provisions, like women joining the workforce before becoming voters. There are obviously fundamental dissimilarities between a pandemic and war that we will con- consider in some detail in the following pages. But the magnitude of their transformative power is comparable both have the potential to be a transformative crisis of previously unimaginable proportions however we must beware of superficial analogies even in the worst case horrendous scenario covid 19 will kill far fewer people than the great plagues including the black deaths or world war ii did furthermore today's economy bears no resemblance to those of past centuries that relied on manual labor and farmland or heavy industry in today's highly interconnected and interdependent world. However, the impact of the pandemic will go well beyond the already staggering statistics relating simply to death, unemployment, and bankruptcies. COVID-19, the great Reset is written and published in the midst of a crisis whose Consequences will unfold over many years to come. Little wonder that we all feel somewhat bewildered, a sentiment so very understandable when an extreme shock strikes, bringing with it the disquieting certainty that its outcomes will be both unexpected and unusual. This strangeness is well captured by Albert Camus in his 1947 novel, The Plague. Yet all these changes were in one sense so fantastic and had been so precipitately that it wasn't easy to regard them as likely to have any permanence. Now that the unthinkable is upon us, what will happen next in the immediate aftermath of the pandemic and then in the foreseeable future? It is, of course, much too early to tell with any reasonable accuracy what COVID-19 will entail in terms of momentous changes, but the objective of this book is to offer some coherent and conceptually sound guidelines about what might lie ahead and to do so in the most comprehensive manner possible. Our aim is to help our readers grasp the multifaceted dimension of the changes that are coming. At the very least, as we will argue, the pandemic will accelerate systemic changes that were already apparent prior to the crisis. The partial retreat from globalization, the growing decoupling between the US and China, the acceleration of automation, concerns about heightened surveillance, the growing appeal of well-being policies, rising nationalism, and the subsequent fear of immigration, the growing power of tech, the necessity for firms to have an even stronger online presence, among many others. But it could go beyond a mere acceleration by altering things that previously seemed unchangeable. It might thus provoke changes that would have seemed inconceivable before the pandemic struck such as new forms of monetary policy, like helicopter money already a given, the reconsideration recalibration of some of our uh, social priorities and an augmented search for the common good as a policy objective, the no- notion of fairness, acquiring political potency, radical welfare and taxation measures, and drastic geopolitical realignments the broader point is this the possibilities for change as the resulting new order are now unlimited and only bound by our imagination for better or for worse societies could be poised to become either more egalitarian or more authoritarian or geared towards more solidarity or more individualism Favoring the interests of the of the few or the many, economies when they recover could take the path of more inclusivity and be more attuned to the needs of our global commons, or they could return to functioning as they did before. You get the point. We should take advantage of this unprecedented opportunity to reimagine our world in a bid to make it a better and more. Resilient one, as it emerges on the other side of this crisis. We are conscious that that attempting to cover the scope and breadth of all the issues addressed in this book is an enormous task that may not even be possible. The subject and all the uncertainties attached to it are gargantuan and could have filled the pages of a publication five times the size of this one. But our objective was to write a relatively concise and simple book to help the reader understand what's coming in a multitude of domains. To interrupt the flow of the text as little as possible, the reference information appears at the end of the book and direct attributions have been minimized. Published in the midst of the crisis and when further waves of infection are expected it will continuously evolve to consider the changing nature of the subject matter. Future editions will be updated in view of new findings, the latest research, revised policy measures and ongoing feedback from readers. This volume is a hybrid between a light academic book and an essay. It includes theory, and practical examples but is chiefly explanatory containing many conjectures and ideas about what the post-pandemic world might and perhaps should look like. It offers neither simple generalizations nor recommendations for a world moving to a new normal but we trust it will be useful. This book is structured around three main chapters offering a panoramic overview of the future landscape the first assesses what the impact of the pandemic will be on five key macro categories the economic societal geopolitical environmental and technological factors the second considers the effects in micro terms on specific industries and companies the third hypothesizes about the nature of the possible consequences at the individual level one macro reset i just realized that was just the introduction okay anyway macro reset (laughs) the first leg of our journey progresses across five macro categories that offer a comprehensive analytical framework to understand what's going on in today's world and how this might evolve for ease of reading We travel thematically through each separately. In reality, they are interdependent, which is where we begin. Our brains make us think in linear terms, but the world that surrounds us is nonlinear. That is to say, complex, adaptive, fast-paced, and ambiguous. 1.1 Conceptual Framework Three defining characteristics of today's world. The macro-reset will occur in the context of the three prevailing secular forces that shape our world today, interdependence, velocity, and complexity. This trio exerts its force to a lesser or greater degree on us all, whoever or wherever we may be. 1.1.1 Interdependence If just one word had to distill the essence of the 21st century, it would have to be interdependence. A byproduct of globalization and technological progress, it can essentially be defined as the dynamic of reciprocal dependence upon the elements that compose a system. The fact that globalization and technological progress have advanced so much over the past few decades has prompted some pundits to declare that the world is hyperconnected, a variant of interdependence on steroids. What does this interdependence mean in practice? Simply that the world is concatenated, linked together. In the early 2010s, Kishori Mabani, an academic and former diplomat from Singapore, captured this reality with a boat metaphor the 7 billion people who inhabit planet earth no longer live in more than 100 separate boats countries instead they all live in 193 separate cabins on the same boat in his own words this is one of the great greatest transformations ever in 2020 he pursued this metaphor further in the context of the pandemic by writing if we 7.5 billion people are now stuck together on a virus-infected cruise ship Does it make sense to clean and scrub only our personal cabins while ignoring the corridors and air wells outside through which the virus travels? The answer is clearly no, yet this is what we have been doing. Since we are now in the same boat, humanity has to take care of the global boat as a whole. An interdependent world is a world of deep systemic connectivity in which all risks affect each other, through a web of complex interactions in such conditions the assertion that an economic risk will be confined to the economic sphere or that an environmental risk won't have repercussions on risks of a different nature economic geopolitical and so on is no longer tenable we can all think of economic risks turning into political ones like a sharp rise in unemployment leading to pockets of social unrest or of technological risks mutating into societal ones, such as the issue of tracing the pandemic on mobile phones, provoking a societal backlash. When considered in isolation, individual risks, whether economic, geopolitical, societal, or environmental in character, give the false impression that they can be contained or mitigated. In real life, systemic connectivity shows this to be an artificial construct. In an interdependent world, Risks amplify each other and, in so doing, have cascading effects. That is why isolation or containment cannot rhyme with interdependence and interconnectedness. The chart below, extracted from the World Economic Forum Global Risks Report 2020, makes this plain. It illustrates the interconnected nature of the risks we collectively face. Each individual risk always conflates with those from its own macro category, but also with the individual risks from the other macro categories. Economic risks appear in blue, geopolitical in orange, societal in red, environmental in green, and technological in purple. In this manner, each individual risk harbors the potential to create ricochet effects by provoking other risks. As the chart makes clear... And infectious diseases risk is bound to have a direct effect on global governance failure, social instability, unemployment, fiscal crises, and involuntary migration, to name just a few. Each of these, in turn, will influence other individual risks, meaning that the individual risk from which the chain of events start, started in this particular case infectious diseases ends up amplifying many other risks not only in its own macro category societal risks but also in the other four macro categories this displays the phenomenon of contagion by systemic connectivity in the following sub chapters we explored what the pandemic risk might entail from an economic, societal, geopolitical, environmental, and technological perspective. Then they got the little figure. Interdependence has an important conceptual effect. It invalidates silo thinking. Since conflation and systemic connectivity are what ultimately matter, addressing a problem or assessing an issue or a risk in isolation from the others is senseless and futile. In the past, this silo thinking partly explains why so many economists economists failed to predict the credit crisis in 2008, and why so few political scientists saw the Arab Spring coming in 2011. Today, the f- problem is the same with the pandemic. Epidemiologists, public health specialists, econo- economists, Social scientists and all the other scientists and specialists who are in the business of helping decision makers understand what lies ahead find it difficult and sometimes impossible to cross the boundaries of their own discipline. That is why addressing complex trade-offs such as containing the progression of the pandemic versus reopening the economy is so fiendishly difficult. Understandably, most experts end up being segregated into increasingly narrow fields. Therefore, they lack the enlarged view necessary to connect the many different dots that provide the more complete picture the decision makers desperately need. 1.1.2 Velocity The above firmly points the finger at technological progress and globalization as the primary culprits responsible for greater interdependence. In addition, they have created such a culture of immediacy that it's not an exaggeration to claim that in today's world, everything moves much faster than before. If just one thing were to be singled out to explain this astonishing increase in velocity, it would undoubtedly be the internet. More than half, 52% of the world's population is now online, compared to less than 8% 20 years ago. In 2019, more than 1.5 billion smartphones, a symbol and vector of velocity that allows us to be reached anywhere and at any time, were sold around the world. The Internet of Things now connects 22 billion devices in real time, ranging from cars to hospital beds, electric grids and water station pumps to kitchen ovens and agricultural irrigation systems. This number is expected to reach $50 or more in 2030. Other explanations for the rise in velocity point to the scarcity element. As societies get richer, time becomes more valuable and is therefore perceived as ever more scarce. This may explain studies showing that people in wealthy cities always walk faster than in poor cities. They have no time to lose! No matter what the causal explanation is, the end game of all of this is clear. As consumers and producers, spouses and parents, leaders and followers, we are all being subjected to constant, albeit discontinuous, rapid change. We can see velocity everywhere, whether it's a crisis, social discontent, technological developments and adoption, geopolitical upheaval the financial markets and of course the manifestation of infectious diseases everything now runs on fast forward as a result we operate in a real-time society with the nagging feeling that the pace of life is ever increasing this new culture of immediacy obsessed with speed is apparent in all aspects of our lives from just-in-time supply chains to high-frequency trading from speed dating to fast food it is so pervasive that some pundits call this new phenomenon the dictatorship of urgency it can indeed take extreme forms research performed by scientists at microsoft shows for example that being slower by no more than 250 milliseconds a quarter of a second is enough for a website to lose hits to its faster competitors The all-embracing result is that the shelf life of a policy, a product, or an idea, and the life cycle of a decision-maker or a project are contracting sharply and often unpredictably. Nothing illustrated this more vividly than the breakneck speed with which COVID-19 progressed in March 2020. In less than a month, from the Maelstrom provoked by the staggering speed at which the pandemic engulfed most of the world a whole new era seemed to emerge the beginning of the outbreak was thought to have taken place in china sometime earlier but the exponential global progression of the pandemic took many decision makers and, and a majority of the public by surprise because we generally find it cognitively hard to grasp the s- significance of exponential growth consider the following in terms of Days for doubling. If a pandemic grows at 30% a day, as COVID-19 did around mid-March for some of the worst affected countries, registered cases or deaths will double in a little more than two days. If it grows at 20%, it will take between four and five days. And if it grows at 10%, it will just take more than a week. Expressed differently, at the global level, it took COVID-19 3 months to reach 100,000 cases, 12 days to double to 200,000 cases, 4 days to reach 300,000 cases, and then 400,000 and 500,000 cases were reached in 2 days each. These numbers make our heads spin extreme velocity in action. Exponential growth is so baffling to our cognitive functions that we often deal with it by developing exponential myopia, thinking of it as nothing more than very fast. In a famous experiment conducted in 1975, two psychologists found that when we have to predict an exponential process, we often underestimate it by a factor of 10. Understanding this growth dynamic and the power of exponentials clarifies why velocity is such an issue and why the speed of intervention to curb the rate of growth is so crucial ernest hemingway understood this in his novel the sun also rises two characters have the following conversation how did you go bankrupt bill asked two ways mike said gradually then suddenly the same tends to happen for big systemic shifts and disruption in general things tend to change gradually at first and then all at once expect the same for the macro reset not only does velocity take extreme forms but it can also engender perverse effects impatience for example is one the effects which can be seen similarly in the behavior of participants in the financial markets with new research suggesting that momentum trading based on velocity leads stock prices to deviate persistently from their fundamental value or correct price and in that of voters in an election The latter will have a critical relevance in the post-pandemic era. Governments, by necessity, take a while to make decisions and implement them. They are obliged to consider many different constituency groups and competing interests, balance domestic concerns with external considerations, and secure legislative approval before putting into motion the bureaucratic machinery to action all of these decisions. By contrast, voters expect almost immediate policy results and improvements, which when they don't arrive fast enough lead to almost instantaneous disappointment. This problem of asynchronicity between two different groups, policymakers and the public, whose time horizon differs so markedly will be acute and very difficult to manage in the context of the pandemic the velocity of the shock and the depth of the pain it has inflicted will not and cannot be matched with equal velocity on the policy side velocity also led many observers to establish a false equivalence by comparing seasonal flu with covid19 this comparison made again and again in the early months of the pandemic was misleading and conceptually erroneous Let's take the example of the U.S. to hammer out the point and better grasp the role played by Velocity in all of this. According to the Centers for Disease Control, CDC, between 39 and 56 million Americans contracted the flu during the 2019-2020 winter season, with between 24,000 and 62,000 deaths. By contrast, and according to Johns Hopkins University, our favorite, on 24 June 2020, more than 2.3 million were diagnosed with COVID-19 and almost 121,000 people had died. But the comparison stops there. It is meaningless for two reasons. One, the flu numbers correspond to the estimated total flu burden while the COVID-19 figures are confirmed cases. And the and two, the seasonal flu cascades in gentle waves. Over a period of up to six months in an even pattern, while the COVID-19 virus spreads like a tsunami in a hotspot pattern in a handful of cities and regions where it concentrates, and in doing so can overwhelm and jam healthcare capacities, monopolizing hospitals to the detriment of non-COVID-19 patients. The second reason, the velocity with which the COVID-19 pandemic surges and the suddenness with which clusters emerge makes all the difference and renders the comparison with the flu irrelevant the velocity lies at the root of the first and second reasons in a vast majority of countries the speed with which the epidemic progressed made it impossible to have sufficient testing capabilities and it then overwhelmed many national health systems equipped to deal with a predictable, recurrent, and rather slow seasonal flu, but not with the super-fast pandemic. Another important and far-reaching consequence of velocity is that decision-makers have more information and more analysis than ever before, but less time to decide. For politicians and business leaders, the need to gain a strategic perspective collides ever more frequently with the day-to-day pressures of immediate decisions, particularly obvious in the context of the pandemic and reinforced by complexity as we see in the next section 1.1.3 complexity in its simplest possible form complexity can be defined as what we don't understand or find difficult to understand as for a complex system the psychologist herbert simon defined it as one made up of a large number of parts that interact in a non-simple way Complex systems are often characterized by an absence of visible causal links between their elements, which makes them virtually impossible to predict. Deep in ourselves, we sense that the more complex a system is, the greater the likelihood that something might go wrong, and that an accident or an aberration might occur and propagate. Complexity can roughly be measured by three factors. 1 the amount of information content or the number of components in a system 2 the interconnectedness defined as the dynamic of reciprocal responsiveness between these pieces of information or components and 3 the effect of nonlinearity nonlinear elements are often called tipping points nonlinearity is a key feature of complexity because it means that a change in just one component of a system can lead to a surprising and disproportionate effect elsewhere. It is for this reason that pandemic models so often yield wide ranges of outcomes. A difference of assumption regarding just one component of the model can dramatically affect the end result. When one hears about black swans, known unknowns, or butterfly effects, nonlinearity is at work. It thus comes as no surprise that we often associate world complexity with surprises, turbulence, and uncertainty. For example, in 2008, how many experts anticipated that mortgage-backed securities originating in the United States would cripple banks around the world and ultimately bring the global financial system to the verge of collapse? And in the early weeks of 2020, how many decision-makers foresaw the extent to which a possible pandemic would wreak havoc? on some of the most sophisticated health systems in the world and would inflict such major damage to the global economy a pandemic is a complex adaptive system comprising many different components or pieces of information as diverse as biology or psychology whose behavior is influenced by such variables as the role of companies economic policies government intervention healthcare politics, or national governance. For this reason, it can and should be viewed as a living network that adapts to changing conditions, not something set in stone, but a system of interactions that is most complex and adaptive. It is complex because it represents a cat's cradle of interdependence and interconnections from which it stems, and adaptive in the sense that it's behavior is driven by interactions between nodes the organizations the people us that can become confused and unruly in times of stress will we adjust to the norms of confinement (laughs) will a majority of us or not abide by the rules etc the management the containment in this particular case of a complex and adaptive system requires continuous real-time and ever-changing collaboration between a vast array of disciplines and between different fields within these disciplines. Just to provide a broad and oversimplified example, the containment of the coronavirus pandemic will necessitate a global surveillance network capable of identifying new outbreaks as soon as they arise, laboratories in multiple locations around the world that can rapidly analyze new viral strains and develop effective treatments large it infrastructures so that communities can prepare and react effectively appropriate and coordinated policy mechanisms to efficiently implement the decisions once they are made and so on the important point is this each separate activity by itself is necessary to address the pandemic, but is insufficient if not considered in conjunction with the others. It follows that this complex adaptive system is greater than the sum of its parts. Its effectiveness depends on how well it works as well as a whole, and it is only as strong as its weakest link. Many pundits have mischaracterized the COVID-19 pandemic, As a black swan event, simply because it exhibits all the characteristics of a complex adaptive system. But in reality, it is a white swan event, something explicitly presented as such by Nassim Taleb in The Black Swan, published in 2007. Something that would eventually take place with a great deal of certainty. Indeed, for years, international organizations like the World Health Organization, WHO, Institutions like the World Economic Forum and the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations, CEPI, launched at the annual meeting in 2017 in Davos, and individuals like Bill Gates have been warning us about the next pandemic risk, even specifying that it one would emerge in a highly populated place where economic development forces people and wildlife together. Two, would spread quickly and silently by exploiting networks of human travel and trade. And three, would reach multiple countries by thwarting containment. As we will see in the following chapters, properly characterizing the pandemic and understanding its characteristics are vital because they were what underpinned the differences in terms of preparedness. Many Asian countries reacted quickly because they were prepared logistically and organizationally due to SARS, and thus were able to lessen the impact of the pandemic. By contrast, many Western countries were unprepared and were ravaged by the pandemic. It is no coincidence that they are the ones in which the false notion of a black swan event circulated the most. However, we can confidently assert that the pandemic, a high probability, high consequences white swan event, will provoke many black swan events through second, third, fourth, and more order effects. It is hard, if not impossible, to foresee what might happen at the end of the chain when multiple order effects and their ensuing cascades of consequences have occurred after unemployment spikes companies go bust and some countries are teetering on the verge of collapse none of these are are unpredictable per se but it is their propensity to create perfect storms when they conflate with other risks that will take us by surprise to sum up the pandemic is not a black swan event but some of its consequences will be the fundamental point here is this complexity creates limits to our knowledge and understanding of things it might thus be that today's increasing complexity liber- literally overwhelms the capabilities of politicians in particular and decision makers in general to make well-informed decisions a theoretical physicist turned head of state president armin sarkisian of armenia made this point when he coined the expression quantum politics outlining how the classical world of post-newtonian physics linear predictable and to some extent even deterministic had given way to the quantum world highly interconnected and uncertain incredibly complex and also changing depending on the position of the observer this expression recalls quantum physics which explains how Everything works and is the best description we have of the nature of the particles that make up matter and the forces with which they interact. The COVID-19 pandemic has laid bare this quantum world. 1.2, economic reset. 1.2.1, the economics of COVID-19. Our contemporary economy differs radically from that of previous centuries. Compared to the past, it is infinitely more interconnected, intricate, and complex. It is characterized by a world population that has grown exponentially, by airplanes that connect any point anywhere to another somewhere else in just a few hours, resulting in more than a billion of us crossing a border each year by humans encroaching on nature and the habitats of wildlife by ubiquitous sprawling megacities that are home to millions of people living cheek by jowl, often without adequate sanitation and medical care. Measured against the landscape of just a few decades ago, let alone centuries ago, today's economy is simply unrecognizable. Notwithstanding, some of the economic lessons to be gleaned from historical pandemics are still valid today to help grasp what lies ahead. The global economic catastrophe that we are now confronting is the deepest recorded since 1945 in terms of its sheer speed. It is unparalleled in history. Although it does not rival the calamities and the absolute economic desperation that societies endured in the past, there are some telling characteristics that are hauntingly similar when in 1665 over the space of 18 months the last bubonic plague had eradicated a quarter of london's population daniel defoe wrote in a journal of the plague year published in 1722 all trades being stopped employment ceased the labor and by that the bread of the poor were cut off And at first, indeed, the cries of the poor were most lamentable to hear, thousands of them having stayed in London till nothing but desperation sent them away, death overtook them on the road, and they served for no better than the messengers of death. Defoe's book is full of anecdotes that resonate with today's situation, telling us how the rich were escaping to the country, taking death with them and observing how the poor were much more exposed to the outbreak, or describing how quacks and mountebanks sold false cures. What the history of previous epidemics shows again and again is how pandemics exploit trade routes and the clash that exists between the interests of public health and those of economics, something that constitutes an economic aberration, as we will see in just a few pages as the historian simon shama describes in the midst of calamity economics was always at loggerheads with the interests of public health even though until there was an understanding of germ-borne diseases the plague was mostly attributed to foul air and noxious vapors said to arise from stagnant or polluted marshes there was none- nonetheless a sense that the very commercial arteries that had generated prosperity were now transformed into vectors of poison but when quarantines were proposed or imposed those who stood to lose most merchants and in some places artisans and workers from the stoppage of markets fairs and trade put up stiff resistance must the economy die so that it could be resurrected in robust good health Yes, said the guardians of public health who became part of urban life in Europe from the 15th century onwards. History shows that epidemics have been the great resetter of countries' economy and social p- fabric. Why should it be different with COVID-19? A seminal paper on the long-term economic consequences of major pandemics throughout history shows that that significant macroeconomic after effects can persist for as long as 40 years substantially depressing real rates of return. This is in contrast to wars that have the opposite effect. They destroy capital while pandemics do not. Wars trigger higher real interest rates implying greater economic activity while the pandemics while pandemics trigger lower real rates implying sluggish economic activity in addition consumers tend to react to the shock by increasing their savings either because of new precautionary concerns or simply to replace the wealth lost during the epidemic on the labor side there will be gains at the expense of capital since real wages tend to rise after pandemics as far back as the black death that ravaged europe from 1347 to 1351 and that suppressed 40 percent of europe's population in just a few years workers discovered for the first time in their life that the power to change things was in their hands barely a year after the epidemic had subsided textile workers in saint omer a small city in northern france demanded and received successive wage wage rises two years later many workers guilds negotiated shorter hours and higher pay sometimes as much as the a third more than the pre-plague level similar but less extreme examples of of other pandemics point to the same conclusion labor gains in power to the detriment of capital nowadays this phenomenon may be exacerbated by the aging of much of the population around the world africa and india are notable exceptions but such a scenario today risks being radically altered by the rise of automation, an issue to which we will return in section 1.6. Unlike previous pandemics, it is far from certain that the COVID-19 crisis will tip the balance in favor of labor and against capital. For political and social reasons, it could, but technology changes the mix. 1.2.1.1 Uncertainty The high degree of ongoing uncertainty surrounding COVID-19 makes it incredibly difficult to precisely assess the re- risk it poses. As with all new risks that are agents of fear, this creates a lot of social anxiety that impacts economic behavior. An overwhelming consensus has emerged within the global scientific community that Jin Qi, one of China's leading scientists, had it right when he said in April 2020, This is very likely to be an epidemic that coexists with humans for a long time, becomes seasonal, and is sustained within human bodies. Ever since the pandemic started, we have been bombarded daily with a relentless stream of data, but in June 2020, roughly half a year after the beginning of the outbreak, our knowledge is very patchy still, and as a result, we still don't really know just how dangerous COVID-19 is. Despite the deluge of scientific papers published on the coronavirus, its infection fatality rate, i.e. the number of COVID-19 cases measured or not that result in death, remains a matter of debate, around 0.4% to 0.5%, and possibly up to 1%. The ratio of undetected to confirmed cases, the rate of transmissions from asymptomatic individuals, the seasonality effect the length of the incubation period the national infection rates progress in terms of understanding each of these is being made but they and many other elements remain known unknowns to a large extent for policymakers and public officials this prevailing level of uncertainty makes it very difficult to devise the right public health strategy and the concomitant The concomitant economic strategy. What the fuck is concomitant? But okay. This should not come as a surprise. Anne Ramon, a professor of epidemiology at UCLA, confesses, this is a novel virus, new to humanity, and nobody knows what will happen. Such circumstances require a good dose of humility, because in the words of Peter Pyatt, one of the world's leading virologists, the more we learn about the coronavirus, the more questions arise. COVID-19 is a master of disguise that manifests itself with protein symptoms that are confounding the medical community. It is first and foremost a respiratory disease, but for a small but sizable number of patients, symptoms range from cardiac inflammation and digestive problems to kidney infection, blood clots, and meningitis. In addition, many people who recover are left with chronic kidney and heart problems as well as lasting neurological effects. In the face of uncertainty, it take it makes sense to resort to scenarios to get a better sense of what lies ahead. With the pandemic, it is well understood that a wide range of potential outcomes is possible, subject to unforeseen events and random occurrences, but three plausible scenarios stand out. Each may help to delineate the contours of what the next two years could be like. These three plausible scenarios are all based on the core assumption that the pandemic could go on affecting us until 2022. Thus, they can help us to reflect upon what lies ahead. In the first scenario, the initial wave that began in March 2020 is followed by a series of smaller waves that occur through mid-2020 and then over a one-to-two-year period, gradually diminishing in 2021, like peaks and valleys. The occurrence and amplitude of these peaks and valleys vary geographically and depend on the specific mitigation measures that are implemented. In the second scenario, the first wave is followed by a larger wave that takes place in the third or fourth quarter of 2020, and one or several smaller subsequent waves in 2021 like during the 1918-1919 Spanish flu pandemic. This scenario requires the re-implementation of mitigation measures around the fourth quarter of 2020 to contain the spread of infection and to prevent healthcare systems from being overwhelmed. In the third scenario, not seen with past influenza pandemics, but possible for COVID-19 a slow burn, of ongoing transmission and case occurrence follows the first wave of 2020 but without a clear wave pattern just with smaller ups and downs like for the other scenarios this pattern varies geographically and is to a certain extent determined by the nature of the earlier mitigation measures put into place in each particular country or region cases of infection and deaths continue to occur but do not require the reinstitution of mitigation measures. A large number of scientists seem to agree with the framework offered by the, these three scenarios. Whichever of the three the pandemic follows, they all mean, as the authors explicitly state, that policymakers must be prepared to deal with at least another 18 to 24 months of of significant COVID-19 activity with hotspots popping up periodically in diverse geographic areas. As we will argue next, a full-fledged economic recovery cannot take place until the virus is defeated or behind us. 1.2.1.2. The economic fallacy of sacrificing a few lives to save growth Throughout the pandemic, there has been a perennial debate about saving lives versus saving the economy, lives versus livelihoods. This is a false trade-off. From an economic standpoint, the myth of having to choose between public health and a hit to GDP growth can easily be debunked. Leaving aside the not insignificant ethical issue of whether sacrificing some lives to save the economy is a social Darwinian proposition or not. Deciding not to save lives will not improve economic welfare. The reasons are twofold. One, on the supply side, if prematurely loosening the various restrictions and rules of social distancing result in an acceleration of infection, which almost all scientists believe it would, more employees and workers would would become infected and more businesses would just stop functioning. After the onset of the pandemic in 2020, the validity of this argument was proven on several occasions. They ranged from factories that had to stop operating because too many workers had fallen ill, primarily the case for work environments that forced physical proximity between workers like in meat processing facilities, to naval ships stranded because too many crew members had been infected, thus preventing the vessel from operating normally, An additional factor that negatively affects the supply of labor is that around the world there were repeated instances of workers refusing to return to work for fear of becoming infected. In many large companies, employees who felt vulnerable to the disease generated a wave of activism including work stoppages. Two, on the demand side, the argument boils down to the most basic and yet fundamental determinant of economic activity sentiments because consumer sentiments are what really drives economies a return to any kind of normal will only help happen when and not before confidence returns individuals perceptions of safety drive consumer and business decisions which means that sustained economic improvement is contingent upon two things the, con- the confidence that the pandemic is behind us without which people will not consume and invest and the proof that the virus is defeated globally without which people will not be able to feel safe first locally and subsequently further afield the logical conclusion of these two points is this governments must do whatever it takes and spend whatever it costs in the interests of our health and our collective wealth for the economy to recover sustainably as both an economist and public health specialist put it only saving lives will save livelihoods making it clear that only policy measures that place people's health at their core will enable an economic recovery adding if governments fail to save lives people afraid of the virus will not resume shopping traveling or dining out this will hinder economic recovery lockdown or no lockdown only future data and subsequent analysis will provide incontrovertible proof that the trade-off between health and the economy does not exist. That said, some U.S. data collected in the early phases of reopening in some states showed a drop in spending and working even before the lockdown. Once people began to worry about the pandemic, they effectively started to shut down the economy even before the government had officially asked them to do so. A similar phenomenon took place after some American states decided to partially reopen. Consumption remained subdued. This proves the point that economic life cannot be activated by fiat, but it also illustrates the predicament that most decision makers experienced when having to decide whether to reopen or not. The economic and societal damage of a lockdown is glaringly obvious to everybody while success in terms of containing the outbreak and preventing deaths, a prerequisite for a successful opening, is more or less invisible. There is no public celebration when a coronavirus case or death doesn't happen, leading to the public health policy paradox that when you do it right, nothing happens. This is why delaying the lockdown or opening too early was always such a strong policy temptation. However, several studies have since shown how such a temptation carried considerable risk to in particular coming to similar conclusions with different methodologies modeled what could have happened without lockdown according to one conducted by imperial college london wide-scale rigorous lockdowns imposed in march 2020 averted 3.1 million deaths in 11 european countries including the uk spain italy france and germany The other, led by the University of California, Berkeley, concluded that 530 million total infections corresponding to 62 million confirmed cases were averted in six countries, China, South Korea, Italy, Iran, France, and the U.S., by the confinement measures that each had put into place. The simple conclusion... In countries afflicted with registered COVID-19 cases that at the peak were roughly doubling every two days, governments had no reasonable alternative but to impose rigorous lockdowns. Pretending otherwise is to ignore the power of exponential growth and the considerable damage it can inflict through a pandemic. Because of the extreme velocity of the COVID-19 progression, the timing and forcefulness of the intervention were of the essence. 1.2.2. Growth and Employment Before March 2020, never had the world economy come to such an abrupt abrupt and brutal stop. Never before had anyone alive experienced an economic collapse so dramatic and drastic both in its nature and place. The shock that the pandemic has inflicted on the global economy has been more severe and has occurred much faster than anything else in recorded economic history. Even in the Great Depression in the early 1930s and the global financial crisis in 2008, it took several years for GDP to contract by 10% or more and for unemployment to soar above 10%. With the pandemic, disaster-like macroeconomic outcomes, in particular exploding unemployment levels and plunging GDP growth, happened in March 2020 over the course of just three weeks. COVID-19 inflicted a crisis of both supply and demand that led to the deepest dive on record for the global economy for over 100 years as the economist kenneth rogoff warned everything depends on how long it lasts but if this goes on for a long time it's certainly going to be the mother of all financial crises the length and acuteness of the downturn and its subsequent hit to growth and employment depend on three things one the duration and severity of the outbreak two each country's success at containing the pandemic and mitigating its effects and three the cohesiveness of each society in dealing with the post confinement measures and the various opening strategies at the time of writing end of june 2020 all three aspects remain unknown renewed waves of outbreaks big and small are occurring country's success at containing the outbreak can either last or suddenly be reversed by new waves and society's cohesion can be challenged by renewed economic and social pain 1.2.2.1 economic growth at different moments between february and may 2020 in a bid to contain the pandemic governments worldwide made the deliberate decision to shut down much of their respective economies this unprecedented course of events has brought with it a fundamental shift in the way the world economy operates marked by an abrupt and unsolicited return to a to a form of relative autarky with every nation trying to move towards certain forms of self-sufficiency, and a reduction in national and global output. The impact of these decisions seemed all the more dramatic because they concerned first and foremost service industries, a sector traditionally more immune than other industries, like construction or manufacturing, to the cyclical swings of economic growth. Consequently, the service sector that represents by far the largest component of economic activity in any developed economy about 70 percent of gdp and more than 80 percent of employment in the u.s was hit the hardest by the pandemic it also suffered from another distinctive characteristic contrary to manufacturing or agriculture lost revenues in services are gone forever They cannot be deferred because service companies don't hold inventories or stock raw materials. Several months into the pandemic, it looks like even a semblance of a return to business as usual for most service companies is inconceivable as long as COVID-19 remains a threat to our health. This, in turn, suggests that a full return to normal cannot be envisaged before a vaccine is available. When might that be? According to most experts... It is unlikely to be before the first quarter of 2021 at the earliest in mid-june 2020 already more than 135 trials were underway proceeding at a remarkable pace considering that in the past it could take up to 10 years to develop a vaccine five in the case of ebola so the reason is not science but production manufacturing billions of doses constitutes the real challenge that will require a massive expansion and diversion of existing capacity the next hurdle is the political challenge of vaccinating enough people worldwide we are collectively as strong as the weakest link with a high enough compliance rate despite the rise of anti-vaxxers during the intervening months the economy will not operate at full capacity a country-dependent phenomenon dubbed the 80% economy. Companies in sectors as varied as travel, hospitality, retail, or sports and events will face the following triple whammy. One, fewer customers who will respond to uncertainty by becoming more risk-averse 2. Those who consume will spend less on average because of precautionary savings, and 3. Transaction costs will be higher. Serving one customer will cost more because of physical distancing and sanitation measures. Taking into account the criticality of services for GDP growth, the richer the country, the greater the importance of services for growth, this new reality of an 80% economy begs the question of whether successive possible shutdowns of business activity in the service sector will have lasting effects on the broader economy through bankruptcies and losses of employment, which in turn begs the question of whether these possible lasting effects could be followed by a collapse in demand as people lose their income and their confidence in the future. Such a scenario will almost inevitably lead to a collapse in investment among business and a surge in precautionary saving among consumers with fallout in the entire global economy through capital flight the rapid and uncertain movement of large amounts of money out of a country which tends to exacerbate economic crises according to the oecd the immediate yearly impact of the economy having been switched off could be a reduction in GDP in the G7 countries of between 20% and 30%. But again, this estimate depends on the outbreak's duration and severity in each country. The longer lockdowns last, the greater the structural damage they inflict by leaving permanent scars in the economy through job losses, bankruptcies, and capital spending cancellations. As a rule of thumb, every month that large Parts of an economy remain closed annual growth might fall by a further two percentage points but as we would expect the relationship between the duration of restrictive measures and the corresponding impact on gdp is not linear the dutch central planning bureau found that every additional month of containment results in a greater non-proportional deterioration of economy economic activity according to the model a full month of economic hibernation would result in a loss of 1.2 percent in dutch growth in 2020 while three months would cause a five percent loss for the regions and countries that have already exited lockdowns it is too early to tell how gdp growth will evolve at the end of june 2020 some v-shaped data like the eurozone purchasing manufacturing indices pmi and a bit of anecdotal evidence generated a stronger than expected rebound narrative but we should not get carried away for two reasons one the marked improvement in pmi in the eurozone and the u.s does not mean that these economies have turned the corner it simply indicates that business activity has improved Compared to previous months, which is natural since a significant pickup in activity should follow the appear- period of inactivity caused by rigorous lockdowns. Two, in terms of future growth, one of the most meaningful indicators to wa- watch is the savings rate. In April, admittedly during the lockdown, the U.S. personal savings rate climbed to 33%, while in the Eurozone, the household savings rate calculated differently than the U.S. personal savings rate rose to 19%. They will both significantly drop as the economies reopen, but probably not enough to prevent these rates from remaining at historically elevated levels. In its World Economic Outlook update published in June 2020, the International Monetary Fund, IMF, warned about a crisis like no other and an uncertain recovery. Compared to April, it revised its projections for global growth downwards anticipating global gdp at negative 4.9 percent in 2020 almost two percentage points below its previous estimate 1.2.2.2 employment the pandemic is confronting the economy with a labor market crisis of gigantic proportions the devastation is such and so sudden as to leave even the most seasoned policymakers almost speechless and we're still nigh on policyless. in testimony before the u.s senate committee on banking on 19 may the federal reserve systems chairman jerome j powell confessed this precipitous drop in economic activity has caused a level of pain that is hard to capture in words as lives are upended amid great uncertainty about the future In just the two months of March and April 2020, more than 36 million Americans lost their jobs, reversing 10 years of job gains. In the U.S., like elsewhere, temporary dismissals caused by the initial lockdowns may become permanent, inflicting intense social pain that only robust social safety nets can alleviate and profound structural damage on countries' economies. The level of global unemployment will ultimately depend on the depth of the collapse in economic activity, but hovering around or exceeding two-digit levels across the world are a given. In the U.S., a harbinger of difficulties to come elsewhere, it is de- estimated that the official rate of unemployment could reach a peak of 25% in 2020. A level equivalent to the, that of the Great Depression that would be even higher if hidden unemployment were to be taken into account like workers who are not counted in official statistics because they are so discouraged they d- abandon the workplace and cease looking for a job or part-time workers who are looking for a full-time job the situation of employees in the service industry will be particularly dire, that of workers not officially employed will be even worse. As for GDP growth, the magnitude and severity of the unemployment situation are country dependent. Each nation will be affected differently, depending on its economic structure and the nature of its social contract. But the US and er- Europe offer two radically different models of how the issue is being addressed by policymakers of what lies ahead. As of June 2020, the rise in the U.S. unemployment rate, it it stood at a mere 3.5% prior to the pandemic, was much higher than anywhere else. In April 2020, the U.S. unemployment rate had risen by 11.2 percentage points compared to February, while during the same period in Germany, it had increased by less than one percentage point. Two reasons account for the striking difference. One, the U.S. labor market has a higher and fire culture that doesn't exist and is often prohibited by law in Europe. And two, right from the onset of the crisis, Europe put into place fiscal measures destined to support employment. In the U.S., government support so far, June 2020, has been larger than in Europe, but of a fundamentally different nature. It provides income support for those who lost their job, with the occasional result that those displaced are better off than in their full-time jobs before the crisis. In Europe, by contrast, the governments decided to directly support those businesses that kept workers formally employed in their original jobs, even when they were no longer working full-time or not working at all. In Germany, the short-time working scheme, called Kurzarbeit, a model emulated elsewhere, replaced up to 60% of earnings for 10 million employees who would have otherwise lost their jobs, while in France, a similar scheme also compensated a similar number of workers by providing them up to 80% of their previous salary. Many other European countries came up with similar solutions, but without which layoffs and redundancies would have been much more consequential. These labor market-supporting measures are accompanied by other governmental emergency measures like those giving insolvent companies the possibility to buy time in many european countries if firms can prove their liquidity problems were caused by the pandemic they won't have to file for bankruptcy until later possibly as late as march 2021 in some countries this makes imminent sense if the recovery takes hold but it could be that this policy is only postponing the problem Globally, a full recovery of the labor market could take decades, and in Europe, like elsewhere, the fear of mass bankruptcies followed by mass unemployment looms large. In the coming months, the unemployment situation is bound to deteriorate further for the simple reason that it cannot improve significantly until a sustainable economic recovery begins. This won't happen before a vaccine or a treatment is found, meaning that many people will be doubly worried about losing their job and about not finding another one if they do lose it, which will lead to a sharp increase in savings rates. In a slightly more distant time, from a few months to a few years, two categories of people will face a particularly bleak unemployment situation. Young people entering for the first time a job market, devastated by the pandemic, and workers susceptible to be replaced by robots <laughs> these are fundamental issues at the intersection of economic society and technology with defining implications for the future of work automation in particular will be a source of acute concern the economic case that technology always exerts a positive economic effect in the long term is well known the substance of the argument goes like this the automation isn't disruptive, is disruptive, but it improves productivity and increases wealth, which in turn leads to greater demands for goods and services and thus to new types of jobs to satisfy those demands. This is correct, but what happens between now and the long term? In all likelihood, the recession induced by the pandemic will trigger a sharp increase in labor substitution, meaning that physical labor will be replaced by robots and intelligent machines which will, in turn, provoke lasting and structural changes in the labor market. In the technology chapter, we analyze in more detail the impact that the pandemic is having on automation, but there is already ample evidence that it is accelerating the pace of transformation. The call center sector epitomizes this situation. In the pre-pandemic era, New artificial intelligence-based technologies were being gradually introduced to automate some of the tasks performed by human employees. The COVID-19 crisis and its accompanying measures of social distancing has suddenly accelerated this process of innovation and technological change. Chatbots, which often use the same voice recognition technology behind Amazon's Alexa, and other software that can replace tasks normally performed by human employees are being rapidly introduced. These innovations provoked by necessity, i.e. sanitary measures, will soon result in hundreds of thousands and potentially millions of job losses. As consumers may prefer automated services to -to face-to-face interactions for some time to come, what is currently happening with call centers will inevitably occur in other sectors as well. Automation anxiety is therefore set for a revival, which the economic recession will exacerbate. The process of automation is never linear. It tends to happen in waves and often in harsh economic times when the decline in companies' revenues makes labor costs relatively more expensive. This is when employers replace less skilled workers with automation to increase labor productivity. Low-income workers and routine jobs in manufacturing and services like food and transportation are those most likely to be affected. The labor market will become increasingly polarized between highly paid work and lots of jobs that have disappeared or aren't well paid and are not very interesting. In emerging and developing countries, particularly those with a youth bulge, technology runs the risk of transforming the demographic Dividend into a demographic nightmare because animation will make it much harder to get on the escalator of economic growth It is easy to give way to excessive pessimism because we human beings find it much easier to visualize What is disappearing than what is coming next? We know and understand that levels of unemployment are bound to rise globally in the foreseeable future But over the coming years and decades we may be surprised We could witness an unprecedented wave of innovation and creativity driven by new methods and tools of production. There might also be a global explosion of hundreds of thousands of new micro-industries that will hopefully employ hundreds of millions of people. Of course, we cannot know what the future holds except that much will depend on the trajectory of future economic growth. 1.2.2.3 What future growth could look like In the post-pandemic era, according to current projections, the new economic normal may be characterized by much lower growth than in past decades. As the recovery begins, quarter-to-quarter GDP growth may look impressive because it will start from a very low basis, but it may take years before the overall size of most nations' economy returns to their pre-pandemic level. This is also due to the fact that the severity of the economic shock inflicted by the coronavirus will conflate with a long-term trend declining populations in many countries and aging demographics is destiny and a crucial driver of gdp growth under such conditions when lower economic growth seems almost certain many people may wonder whether obsessing about growth is even useful concluding that it doesn't make sense to chase a target of ever higher gdp growth The deep disruption caused by COVID-19 globally has offered societies an enforced pause to reflect on what is truly of value. With the economic emergency responses to the pandemic now in place, the opportunity can be seized to make the kind of institutional changes and policy choices that will put economies on a new path towards a fairer, greener future. The history of radical rethinking in the years following World War II, which included the establishment of the Bretton Woods institutions, the United Nations, the EU, and the expansion of welfare states, shows the magnitude of the shifts possible. This raises two questions. One, what should the new compass for tracking progress be and two what will the new drivers of an economy that is inclusive and sustainable be in relation to the first question changing course will require a shift in the mindset of world leaders to place greater focus and priority on the well-being of all citizens and the planet historically national statistics were amassed principally to furnish governments with a better understanding of the available resources for taxation and waging war. As democracies grew stronger in the 1930s, the remit of national statistics was extended to capture the economic welfare of the population, yet distilled into the form of GDP. Economic welfare became equivalent to current production and consumption, with no consideration given to the future availability of resources. Policymakers' over reliance on GDP as an indicator of the economic prosperity has led to the current state of natural and social resource depletion. What other elements should an improved dashboard for progress include? First, GDP itself needs to be updated to reflect the value created in the digital economy, the value created through unpaid work, as well as the value potentially destroyed through certain types of economic activity. The omission of value created through work carried out in the household has been a long-standing issue, and research efforts to create a measurement framework will need new momentum. In addition, as the digital economy is expanding, the gap between measured activity and actual economic activity has been growing wider. Furthermore, certain types of financial products which, through their inclusion in GDP, are captured as value-creating, are merely shifting value from one place to another or sometimes even have the effect of destroying it. Second, it is not only the overall size of the economy that matters, but also the distribution of gains and the progressive evolution of access to opportunity. With income inequality more marked than ever in many countries and technological developments driving further polarization, total GDP or averages such as GDP per capita are becoming less and less useful as true indicators of individuals' quality of life. Wealth inequality is a significant dimension of today's dynamic of inequality and should be more systematically tracked. Third, resilience will need to be better measured and monitored to gauge the true health of an economy, including the determinants of productivity, such as institutions, infrastructure, human capital, and innovation ecosystems, which are critical for the overall strength of a system. Furthermore, the capital reserves upon which a country can draw in times of crisis including financial, physical, natural, and social capital will need to be tracked systematically. Albeit that natural and social capital in particular are difficult to measure, they are critical to the social cohesion and environmental sustainability of a country and should not be underestimated. Recent academic efforts are beginning to tackle the measurement challenge by bringing public and private sector data sources together real examples of a shift in policymakers emphasis are appearing it is no coincidence that in 2019 a country placed in the top 10 ranking of the world happiness report unveiled a well-being budget the prime minister of new zealand's decision to earmark money for social issues such as mental health child poverty and family violence made well-being an explicit goal of public policy In so doing, Prime Minister Ardern turned into policy what everybody has known for years, that an increase in GDP does not guarantee an improvement in living standards and social welfare. Additionally, several institutions and organizations, ranging from cities to European Commission, are reflecting on options that would sustain future economic activity at a level that matches the satisfaction of our material needs with the respect of our planetary boundaries the municipality of amsterdam is the first in the world to have formally committed to this framework as a starting point for public policy decisions in the post-pandemic world the framework resembles a donut in which the inner ring represents the minimum we need to lead a good life as enunciated by the UN's sustainable development goals. And the outer ring, the ecological ceiling defined by earth system scientists, which highlights the boundaries not to be crossed by human activity to avoid environmentally negative impact on climate, soil, oceans, the ozone layer, freshwater, and biodiversity. In between the two rings is the sweet spot, or dough, where our human needs and those of the planet are being met we do not know yet whether the tyranny of gdp growth will come to an end but different signals suggest that the pandemic may accelerate changes in many of our well-entrenched social norms if we collectively recognize that beyond a certain level of wealth defined by gdp per capita happiness be depends more on intangible factors such as accessible health care and a robust social fabric than on material consumption then values as different as the respect for the environment responsible eating empathy or generosity may gain ground and progressively come to characterize the new social norms Beyond the immediate ongoing crisis, in recent years, the role of economic growth in advancing living standards has varied, depending on context. In high-income economies, productivity growth has been steadily declining since the 1970s, and it has been argued that there are currently no clear policy avenues for reviving long-term growth. In addition, the growth that did materialize disproportionately accrued to individuals at the top end of the income distribution. A more effective approach may be for policymakers to target welfare-enhancing interventions more directly. In low- and middle-income countries, the benefits of economic growth have lifted millions out of poverty in large emerging markets. The policy options to boost growth performance are better known, e.g. addressing basic distortions, yet new approaches will have to be found as the manufacturing-led development model is fast losing its power with the advent of the fourth industrial revolution. This leads to the second key question around future growth. If the direction and quality of economic growth matter as much as, or perhaps even more than, its speed, what are likely to be the new drivers of this quality in the post-pandemic economy? Several areas have the potential to offer an environment capable of boosting a more inclusive and sustainable dynamism. The green economy spans a range of possibilities from greener energy to ecotourism, to the circular economy for example shifting from the take make dispose approach to production and consumption to a model that is restorative and regenerative by design can preserve resources and minimize waste by using a product again when it reaches the end of its useful life thus creating further value that can in turn generate economic benefits by contributing to innovation job creation and ultimately growth Companies and strategies that favor repairable products with longer lifespans from phones and cars to fashion that even offer free repairs like Patagonia outdoor wear and platforms for trading used products are all expanding fast. The social economy spans other high growth and job creating areas in the fields of caregiving and personal services education and health investment in child care care for the elderly and old, other elements of the care economy would create 13 million jobs in the u.s alone and 21 million jobs in seven economies and would lead to a two percent rise in gdp growth in the country study education is also an area of massive job creation particularly when considering primary and secondary education technical and vocational education and training, university and adult training together. Health, as the pandemic has demonstrated, requires much greater investment, both in terms of infrastructure and innovation, as well as human capital. These three areas create a multiplier effect, both through their own employment potential and the long-term benefits they unleash across societies in terms of equality, social mobility, and inclusive growth. Innovation in production, distribution, and business models can generate efficiency gains and new or better products that create higher value added, leading to new jobs and economic prosperity. Governments thus have tools at their disposal to make the shift towards more inclusive and sustainable prosperity, combining public sector direction setting and incentives with commercial innovation capacity through a fundamental rethinking of markets and their role in our economy and society. This requires investing differently and deliberately in the frontier markets outlined above. Areas where market forces could have a transformative effect on economies and societies, but where some of the necessary preconditions to function are still lacking. For instance, technical capacities to sustainably produce a product or asset at scale are still insufficient, standards are not well defined, or legal frameworks are not yet well developed shaping the rules and mechanisms of these new markets can have a transformational impact on the economy if governments want the shift to a new and better kind of growth they have a window of opportunity to act now to create incentives for innovation and creativity in the areas outlined above Some have called for degrowth, a movement that embraces zero or even negative GDP growth that is gaining some traction, at least in the richest countries. As the critique of economic growth moves to center stage, consumerism's financial and cultural dominance in public and private life will be overhauled. This is made obvious in consumer-driven degrowth activism in some niche segments like advocating for less meat or fewer flights. By triggering a period of enforced degrowth, the pandemic has spurred renewed interest in this movement that wants to reverse the pace of economic growth, leading more than 1,100 experts from around the world to release a manifesto in May 2020, putting forth a degrowth strategy to tackle the economic and human crisis caused by covid 19 their open letter calls for the adoption of a democratically planned yet adaptive sustainable and equitable downscaling of the economy leading to a future where we can live better with less however beware of the pursuit of degrowth proving as directionless as the pursuit of growth the most forward-looking countries and their governments will instead prioritize a more inclusive and sustainable approach to managing and re- measuring their economies, one that also drives job growth, improvements in living standards, and safeguards the planet. The technology to do more than with less already exists. There is no fundamental trade-off between economic, so- social, and environmental factors. If we uh, adopt this more holistic and longer-term approach to defining progress and incentivizing investment in green and social frontier markets 1.2.3 fiscal and monetary policies the fiscal and monetary policy response to the pandemic has been decisive massive and swift in systematically important countries central banks decided almost immediately after the beginning of the outbreak to cut interest rates while launching large quantitative easing programs committing to print the money necessary to keep the cost of government borrowing low the u.s fed undertook to buy treasury bonds and agency mortgage-backed securities while the european central bank promised to buy any instrument that governments would issue a move that succeeded in reducing the spread in borrowing costs between weaker and stronger eurozone members concomitantly most governments launched ambitious and unprecedented fiscal policy responses urgent and expansive measures were taken very early on during the crisis with three specific aims one fight the pandemic with as much spending as required to bring it under control as rapidly as possible through the production of tests hospital capabilities research in drugs and vaccines etc Two, provide emergency funds to households and firms on the verge of bankruptcy and disaster. And three, support aggregate demand so that the economy can operate as far as possible close to potential. These measures will lead to very large fiscal deficits with a likely increase in debt to GDP ratios of 30% of GDP in the rich economies. At the global level, the aggregate stimulus from government spending will likely exceed 20% of global GDP in 2020, with significant variation across countries ranging from 33% in Germany to more than 12% in the U.S. This expansion of fiscal capabilities has dramatically different implications depending on whether the country concerned is advanced or emerging. High-income countries have more fiscal space because a higher level of debt should prove sustainable and entail a viable level of welfare cost for future generations for two reasons. One, the commitment from central banks to purchase whatever amount of bonds it takes to maintain low interest rates, and two, the confidence that interest rates are likely to remain low in the foreseeable future because uncertainty will continue hampering private investment and will justify high levels of precautionary savings in contrast the situation couldn't be starker in emerging and developing economies most of them don't have the fiscal space required to react to the pandemic shock they are already suffering from major capital overflows and a fall in commodity prices which means their exchange rate will be hammered if they re- if they decide to launch expansionary fiscal policies in these circumstances help in the form of grants and debt relief and possibly an outright moratorium will not only be needed but will be critical these are unprecedented programs for an unprecedented situation something so new that the economist carmen reinhardt has called it a whatever-it-takes moment for large-scale, outside-the-box fiscal and monetary policies. Measures that would have seemed inconceivable prior to the pandemic may well become standard around the world as governments try to prevent the economic recession from turning into a catastrophic depression. Increasingly, there will be calls for government to act as a payer of last resort, to prevent or stem the spate of mass layoffs and business destruction triggered by the pandemic. All these changes are altering the rules of the economic and monetary policy game. The artificial barrier that makes monetary and fiscal authorities independent from each other has now been dismantled, with central bankers becoming, to a relative degree, subservient to elected politicians. It is now conceivable that in the future the government will try to wield its influence over central banks to finance major public projects such as an infrastructure or green investment fund. Similarly, the precept that government can intervene to preserve workers' jobs or incomes and protect companies from bankruptcy may endure after these policies come to an end. It is likely that public and political pressure to maintain such schemes will persist, even when the situation improves. One of the greatest concerns is that this implicit cooperation between fiscal and monetary policies leads to uncontrollable inflation. It originates in the idea that policymakers will deploy massive fiscal stimulus that will be fully monetized, i.e., not. Financed through standard government debt. This is where modern monetary theory, MMT, and helicopter money come in. With interest rates hovering around zero, central banks cannot stimulate the economy by classic monetary tools, i.e. a reduction in interest rates unless they decided to go for deeply negative interest rates, a problematic move resisted by most central banks. The stimulus... Must therefore come from an increase in fiscal deficits, meaning that public expenditure will go up at a time when tax revenues decline. Put in the simplest possible, and in this case simplistic terms, MMT runs like this. Governments will issue some debt that the central bank will buy. If it never sells it back, it equates to monetary finance. The deficit is monetized by the central bank purchasing the bonds that the government issues, and the government can use the money as it sees fit. It can, for example, metaphorically drop it from helicopters to those people in need. The idea is appealing and realizable, but it contains a major issue of social expectations and political control. Once citizens realize that money can be found on a magic money tree, Elected politicians will be under fierce and relentless public pressure to create more and more, which is when the issue of inflation kicks in. 1.2.3.1 Deflation or Inflation Two technical elements embedded in the issue of monetary finance are associated with the risk of inflation. First, the decision to engage in perpetual quantitative easing i.e., in monetary finance, doesn't have to be taken when the central bank buys the debt and shoot by the government. It can be left to the contingent future to hide or circumvent the idea that money grows on trees. Second, the inflationary impact of helicopter money is not related to whether the deficit is funded or unfunded, but is directly proportional to the amount of money involved. There are no nominal Limits to how much money a central bank can create, but there are sensible limits to how much they would want to create to achieve reflation without risking too much inflation. The resultant increase in nominal GDP will be split between a real output effect and an increase in price level effect. This balance and its inflationary nature will depend on how tight the supply constraints are, so ultimately on the amount of money created. Central bankers may decide that there is nothing to worry about with inflation at 2% or 3%, and that 4% to 5% is also fine, but they will have to define an upper limit at which inflation becomes disruptive and a real concern. The challenge will be to determine at what level inflation becomes corrosive and a source of obsessive concern for consumers for the moment some fear deflation while others worry about inflation what lies behind these divergent anxieties for the future the deflation warriors point to a collapsing labor market and stumbling commodity prices and wonder how inflation could possibly pick up anytime soon in these conditions. Inflation warriors observe the substantial increases in central bank balance sheets and fiscal deficits and ask how these will not one day lead to inflation and possibly high inflation and even hyperinflation. They point to the example of Germany after World War I, which inflated away its domestic war debt in the hyperinflation of 1923 or the uk which eroded with a bit of inflation the massive amount of debt 250 percent it inherited from world war ii these warriors acknowledge that in this short term deflation may be the bigger risk but argue that inflation is ultimately unavoidable given the massive and inevitable amounts of stimulus. At this current juncture, it is hard to imagine how inflation could pick up anytime soon. The reshoring of production activities could generate occasional pockets of inflation, but they are likely to remain limited. The combination of potent long-term structural trends like aging and technology both are deflationary in nature. And an exceptionally high unemployment rate that will constrain wage increases for years puts strong downward pressure on inflation. In the post-pandemic era, strong consumer demand is unlikely. The pain inflicted by widespread unemployment, lower incomes for large segments of the population, and uncertainty about the future are all likely to lead to an increase in precautionary savings. When social distancing eventually eases pent-up demand could provoke a bit of inflation but it is likely to be temporary and will therefore not affect inflation expectations olivier blanchard the former chief economist of the imf thinks that only the combination of the following three elements could create inflation one a very large increase in the debt to gdp ratio larger than the current forecast of 20 to 30 percent. Two, a very large increase in the neutral rate, i.e., the safe real rate required to keep the economy at potential. And three, fiscal dominance of monetary policy. The probability of each individually is already low, so the probability of the three occurring in conjunction with each other is extremely low, but not nil. Bond investors think alike. This could change, of course, but at the moment, the low rate. differential between nominal and inflation indexed bonds paints a picture of ongoing very low inflation at best in the coming years high-income countries may well face a situation similar to that of japan over the past few decades structurally weak demand very low inflation and ultra low interest rates the possible japanification of the rich world is often depicted as a hopeless combination of no growth no inflation and insufferable debt levels. This is misleading. When the data is adjusted for de- demographics Japan does better than most. Its GDP per capita is high and growing and since 2007 its real GDP per member of the working age population has risen faster than any in other G7 country. Naturally there are many idiosyncratic reasons for this a very high level of social capital and trust, but also labor productivity growth that surpasses the average and a successful absorption of elderly workers into the labor force. But it shows that a shrinking population doesn't have to lead to economic oblivion. Japan's high living standards and well-being indicators oft- offer a salutary lesson that there is hope in the face of economic the fate of the u.s dollar for decades the u.s has enjoyed the exorbitant privilege of retaining the global currency reserve a status that has long been a perk of imperial might and an economic elixir to a considerable extent american power and prosperity have been built and reinforced by the global trust in the dollar and the willingness of customers abroad to hold it most often in the form of U.S. government bonds. The fact that so many countries and foreign institutions want to hold dollars as a store of value and as an instrument of exchange for trade has anchored its status as the global reserve currency. This has enabled the U.S. to borrow cheaply abroad and benefit from low interest rates at home, which in turn has allowed Americans to consume beyond their means. It has also made large recent U.S. government deficits possible, permitted the U.S. to run substantial trade deficits, reduced the exchange rate risk, and made the U.S. financial markets more liquid. At the core of the U.S. dollar status as a reserve currency lies a critical issue of trust. Non-Americans who hold dollars trust that that the United States will protect both its own interests, by managing sensibly its economy and the rest of the world as far as the U.S. dollar is concerned, by managing sensibly its currency, like providing dollar liquidity to the global financial system, efficiently and rapidly. For quite some time, some analysts and policymakers have been considering a possible and progressive end to the dominance of the dollar. They now think that the pandemic might be the catalyst that proves them right. Their argument is twofold and relates to both sides of the trust issue. On the one hand, managing the economy sensibly, doubters of U.S. dollar dominance point to the inevitable and sharper deterioration of the U.S. fiscal deposition. In their mind, unsustainable levels of debt will eventually erode confidence in the U.S. dollar. Just prior to the pandemic, U.S. defense spending plus interest on the federal debt Plus annual entitlement payments, Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security represented 112% of federal tax receipts versus 95% in 2017. This unsustainable path will worsen in the post-pandemic, post-bailout era. This argument suggests that something major will therefore have to change, either through a much-reduced geopolitical role or higher taxation, or both, Otherwise, the rising deficit will reach a a threshold beyond which non-U.S. investors are unwilling to fund it. After all, the status of reserve currency cannot last longer than foreign confidence in the ability of the holder to honor its payments. On the other hand, managing the U.S. dollar sensibly for the rest of the world... Doubters of the dollar's dominance point to the incompatibility of its status as a global reserve currency with rising economic nationalism at home. Even though the Fed and the U.S. Treasury manage the dollar and its influential network worldwide with efficacy, skeptics emphasize that the Willingness of the U.S. administration to weaponize the U.S. dollar for geopolitical purposes, like punishing countries and companies that trade with Iran or North Korea, will inevitably incentivize dollar holders to look for alternatives. Are there any viable alternatives? The U.S. remains a formidable global financial hegemon the role of the dollar in international financial transactions is far greater albeit less visible than in international trade but it is also true that many then many countries would like to challenge the global, dollar's global dominance in the short term there are no alternatives the chinese renminbi rmb could be an option but not until strict capital controls are eliminated and the rmb turns into a market-determined currency, which is unlikely to happen in the foreseeable future. The same goes for the euro. It could be an option, but not until doubts about a possible implosion of the eurozone dissipate for good, which again is an unlikely prospect in the next few years. As for a global virtual currency, there is none in sight yet, but there are attempts to launch national digital currencies that may eventually dethrone the U.S. dollar supremacy. The most significant one took place in china at the end of april 2020 with a test of the national digital currency in four large cities the country is years ahead of the rest of the world in developing a digital currency combined with powerful electronic payment platforms this experiment clearly shows that there are monetary systems that are trying to become independent from u.s intermediaries while moving towards greater digitization. Ultimately, the possible end of the U.S. dollar's primacy will depend on what happens in the U.S. As Henry Paulson, a former U.S. Treasury Secretary, says, U.S. dollar prominence begins at home. The United States must maintain an economy that inspires global credibility and confidence. Failure to do so will, over time, put the U.S. dollar's position in peril. To a large extent, U.S. global credibility also depends on geopolitics and the appeal of its social model. The exorbitant privilege is intricately intertwined with global power, the perception of the U.S. as a reliable partner, and its role in the working of multilateral institutions. If that role were seen as less sure and that security guarantee as less ironclad, because the U.S. was disengaging from global geopolitics in favor of more standalone, inward-looking policies, the security premium u- enjoyed by the U.S. dollar could diminish, mourns Barry Eichengreen and European Central Bank Representatives. Questions and doubts about the future status of the dollar as a global currency reserve are an apt reminder that economics does not exist in isolation. This reality is particularly harsh and over-indebted emerging and poor countries now unable to repay their debt, often denominated in dollars. For them, this crisis will take on huge proportions and years to sort out with considerable economic damage translating fast into social and humanitarian pain. In all these countries, the COVID crisis may well end the gradual process of convergence that was supposed to bring highly developed and emerging or developing countries into closer alignment. This will lead to an increase in societal and geopolitical risks, a stark reminder of the extent to which economic risks intersect with societal issues and geopolitics. To be continued in the next part, part two of COVID-19, the Great Reset, super awkward staged reading of it.